It's the Mark Stein Show. February 2021, the first anniversary of our locked down world approaches. Thank you, Chairman Xi. Chinaman, Chinaman, friendly neighborhood Chinaman. Spins a web round the globe while you're calling Rand Paul transphobe. Look out, here comes the Chinaman. Is he strong? Listen, bud. He's got Wuhan infusion blood. Is he cruel? Ask a Uyghur. Global Muslim complaints are meager. They dig. Don't mess with the Chinaman. In the chill of night, in your best guarded labs, it's your copyright. But he's in and he grabs Chinaman, Chinaman. Hong Kong's gone up next Taiwan. Can he buy anyone? Let's ask Mr. Joe Biden's son too late. Turns out the guy you prayed for Already bought and paid for He's just a Chinaman Okay, that's enough of that Uh, When I was hosting for Tucker last week I said to Gordon Chang that news-wise My general position is that when you're not talking about China You're not talking about anything important And I felt we ought to live up to that here on The Mark Stein Show So I'm introducing a new featurette about Chinese penetration of the West. The idea being that we'll focus on Chinese penetration of politicians such as uh, the entire Biden family and Dianne Feinstein and also of critical societal uh, institutions such as Oxford and Cambridge and other prominent universities high on Chi-Com money. But here we are, the very first day of our new featurette, and Chinese penetration is literal. The BBC, CNN, The Washington Post and other media outlets are reporting that American diplomatic staff in China are being forced to undergo the new anal swab COVID test that Beijing says is far more effective than the nasal swab. Can't you just see Doc Fauci uh, saying that in another week or two? Oh, and that Professor pants down at Imperial College in London, too. The U.S. State Department has complained to the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs that this is inconsistent with the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. Uh, I'm not sure that that's strictly true. I've given it the quick once over and the Vienna Convention is silent on whether the host country has the right to stick stuff up the ambassador's butt, Uh, but it doesn't explicitly rule it out. The Chinese, for their part, are denying that they're making U.S. diplomats drop their BVDs. And Beijing has denied on Thursday asking U.S. diplomats to take anal swab tests for COVID-19. U.S. media outlet Vice earlier cited a State Department official as saying the test was given in error. The State Department, in an email to Reuters, said they are committed to guaranteeing the safety and security of American diplomats and their families. Hmm. So as you heard there, Washington is now taking the position. (laughs) 
actually, I should I should just leave it at that. Washington is now taking the position. Assume the position, as Rush liked to say. <laughs> don't, don't worry, I'll I'll, uh, I'll get through this. As you heard there, Washington is now taking the position that China administered these anal swabs, quote, in error. Could happen to anyone. Oh, sorry, I meant to give you the nasal swab. Um, the old American gag was that all Chinese look alike. The Chinese uh, gag is now that all American bottoms look like American faces, which is a much subtler gag. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Wu flu corona anal swab test, well, we mentioned it a few weeks ago. But here's Dorcas Wangira explaining on Kenyan TV the ins and outs of it. Testing for COVID-19 has become part of our new normal. With a PCR test, one has to have both the oral and nasopharyngeal swabs taken for testing. And in some instances, a rapid test is also taken. But none has aroused more controversy and debate than the anal swabs to screen for coronaviruses. Some Chinese cities are using samples taken from the anus to detect potential COVID-19 infections as the country steps up screening. To make sure that no potential carrier of the new coronavirus is missed, anal swabs require inserting a cotton swab 3 to 5 centimeters or 1.2 to 2 inches into the anus and gently rotating it to get the required swab. I love the way Dorcas says, gently rotating. Oh, like wind chimes at a therapeutic massage. Anyway, Kenyans are not happy about this because they think if Beijing is doing it to the Yanks, they'll certainly be doing it to them. I'd say it's more likely they're doing it to the Yanks so they won't have to do it to the Kenyans and the Bolivians and the Slovaks. If you make American diplomats assume the position, the rest of the world gets the message pretty quickly. Uh, we've fi we finished the anal swab kits, Chairman Xi. Where do you want to institute the pilot program? How about American consulate in Shanghai? Incidentally, who's to say they aren't putting tracking devices and bugs up there when they administer this so-called COVID test? I'm trying to not make too much of the awesome symbolic power uh, of this unexpected development a mere one month into the new Washington-Beijing relationship. I'm trying not to make too much of its awesome symbolic power, but I'm pretty much failing. Anyway, enough of the American diplomatic corps assuming the position. I think I need a palate cleanser after that news story. Here's a lovely ballad from The Sound of Moo Sick. Uh, what's that? Oh, sorry, The Sound of Music. The Sound of Moo Sick is that new musical about climate activists traumatized by bovine flatulence. This is uh, such a tender ballad. Shoot. Anal swab, anal swab, every morning you're up. job one slight throb who's the lucky guy yep me brainchild of she up the old yangtze probing me 
Thanks you, Chairman Jake, from the heart of our bottoms. What else is happening? America has bombed Syria. I don't know why did Syria reopen its hair salons without following the science. We've still to hear an entirely coherent explanation for the crash of the entire Federal Reserve System in the United States this week. I do hope it wasn't a trial run by Chairman Xi, just sticking it up there and gently rotating. Whenever they explain it, they make the entire system sound totally rackety. You may want to start keeping your Bitcoin in a shoebox under the bed. I didn't really follow this next one, but there was something about Mr. Potato Head going gender neutral. I thought I saw the gender neutral Mr. Potato Head on TV, but it was only a Senate confirmation hearing for the new Deputy Assistant Undersecretary of Health and Human Services. I don't generally do jokes about people's physical appearances, lest it invite well-deserved retribution. But I think I'll make an exception here. If we're going to have powerful federal bureaucracies in favour of the irreversible physical mutilation and hormone treatment of children, uh, they could at least give us a better-looking tranny. By comparison with the wide-open southern border of the United States, the southern border of the Dominion of Canada is one of the most locked-down frontiers in the world. If I want to go 20 minutes north to Quebec for lunch, the bad news is I have to quarantine for three days in a government isolation facility for which Justin Trudeau charges me two grand for room and board. The good news is I'm free to sexually assault any woman I chance to find in there. Here's an attack apiece from Ontario and Quebec. If you hear of any others, do let me know. In Ontario, a female in COVID isolation was told by one of Justin's security guards that she was in non-compliance with his quarantine strictures and ordered to pay a fine there and then. When the lady refused, Justin's security guard sexually assaulted her. The second story is from Quebec. A Montreal-area woman claims she was sexually assaulted at a hotel while she was under mandatory quarantine. The Crown has confirmed a man faces charges. I'm helpless. This is why I want my story to be told. I'm helpless. We're all helpless here. Like She says she was visiting her boyfriend in the U.S. when she heard the news that all travelers returning to Canada after February 22nd must quarantine in a hotel. So she booked a return ticket for February 16th and says she followed the rules she was given, which was to provide a negative rapid COVID-19 test result, and she would be clear to return to her home in the Montreal area. But when she landed at Trudeau Airport, she says the staff there told her she had the wrong test and she must quarantine at a government location. The wrong test, huh? Another Chairman G twist in the tail? Yeah, but they don't tell you where they're bringing you, which I find unacceptable. They brought me there, um, gave us a set of rules. We're not allowed to be like post anything on social media. I'm not allowed to disclose my location to family, friends, anybody. The locking mechanism on the door of her room was defective, and another detainee liked what he saw. He ran into my room, made himself at home, 
sat in all the way in the back of my couch. She says she asked him to leave and he refused. I'm like, you need to get out of my room and I don't want like I don't want anything to do with you. And he goes to me, oh, come on, I haven't had sexual intercourse in a really long time. That's when she says he put his hands on her, grabbing her by the waist. This is your last chance or I'm going to scream for help. Uh, had turned around and his pants are down to his knees and his hands on his genitals. She says she told him again that she was going to scream. I had called security, took them 15, 20 minutes to get to my room. And when they did, what did they do? They handed me the bottle of water that I asked for four hours ago. The Crown has confirmed to CTV News that a man has been charged. The quarantine authorities told her they would let her go to hospital, but she had to return to the facility. She, reasonably enough, didn't want to come back to the scene of the assault. The position of Her Majesty's Canadian government is that it's all her fault. Here's the Alberta MP, Michelle Rempel-Garner. Upon entry into Canada, her passport was seized and she was forced into a taxi without knowing where she would be taken. She was forced into a federal-run facility under a federal duty of care by the Liberal government and she was sexually assaulted. This is misogyny and a gross violation of her rights. The Deputy Prime Minister and the Health Minister have implied the victim shouldn't have travelled. Were they suggesting that she deserved what happened to her under their duty of care? Honourable Minister... Mr. Speaker, every woman deserves to live a life free of violence and, uh, and, and a life of dignity. Uh, but I will repeat, these border measures are in place to protect Canadians, and they will remain in place until such time that science and evidence indicates that it is safe to release them. Patty Hashdu, Canada's Minister of Health, quote, Every woman deserves to live a life free of violence and a life of dignity, but, but... Hey, it's COVID, and if we wall you up with a guy who declines to social distance, that's your fault for being the kind of gal who likes to go south of the border, if you know what we mean. Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance. Tales that transcend genre. Everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalogue of nearly three dozen tales for our time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com T-F-O-T. Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. I mentioned on Thursday's Clubland Q&A that a commenter had commented on Boris Johnson's ever-moving goalposts on coming out of lockdown, lockdown 2.0, modified lockdown, whatever. In fact, it was uh, John Lewis, a Mark Stein Club member from West Sussex in England, who compiled the timeline. And uh, it's worth citing in full, I think. John writes, here is the timeline. 1. March 19th. Boris Johnson said the UK, quote, can turn the tide within the next 12 weeks. I'm absolutely confident that we can send coronavirus packing. March 23rd, Boris Johnson pledged to, quote, look again in three weeks and relax restrictions if the evidence shows we are able to. July 17th, the PM expressed hope of a, quote, significant return to normality and the end of social distancing as early as November. 
July 19th, Boris Johnson ruled out a second lockdown in an interview with The Telegraph comparing the option to a, quote, nuclear deterrent. August 29th, there were plans to, quote, make sure that people can have as much freedom to enjoy Christmas as possible, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, said. September 9th, Boris Johnson said he hoped that even sectors like theatre could, quote, have life much closer to normal within months. October 2nd, quote, we'll do everything we can to make sure that Christmas for everybody is as normal as possible, Boris Johnson told ITV. November 5th, Boris Johnson said if people followed lockdown measures, there would be, quote, as normal a Christmas as possible, November 24th, Boris Johnson confirmed that Britons would be able to form a Christmas bubble of no more than three households. December 16th, Johnson said it would be, quote, frankly inhuman and against the instincts of many people to cancel Christmas. The same day, December 16th, Community Secretary Robert Jenrick said, quote, we can meet up in the spring. Easter can be the new Christmas for some people. December 19th, Christmas was cancelled for millions in London and the South East after Tier 4 stay-at-home rules are announced. That's the ones where the uh, Tier 3 boy can't hook up with a Tier 2 girl and all that stuff. And finally, January the finally for now, January the twenty second, George Eustace, the the Environment Secretary, told Sky News life will be quote much closer to normal as soon as late spring, which uh, is June, or uh, a year and a quarter after uh, Boris promised to send coronavirus packing. So you notice the way uh, the the curve flattening has magically extended itself. You know, in, Bar- in March, he's talking about 12 weeks. By July, he's promising November. Um, in uh, August, he's talking about a normal Christmas. Uh, by December, uh, the community secretary is saying we can have Christmas at Easter. Um, by uh, January, the Environment Secretary is talking about late spring, kicking the can, kicking the can ever, ever further down the road. Thank you for that, John Lewis. And we all know by late spring, they'll be saying life will be getting much closer to normal by early winter or by late 2022 or whatever. The virus lives the life we used to lead. It goes where it wants. It does what it wants. Uh, You compare by almost any metric the free state of Florida with Gavin Newsom's California or with uh, Emmanuel Macron's France, and it's pretty obvious that lockdowns make no difference except to suicide rates and deaths from deferred cancer operations and a general listlessness and uh, depression to which I, I fear I've become prone uh, to be honest, I've, I've never lived like this, and I honestly can't stand it. Meanwhile, 
Almost every government across Christendom does something it has never attempted through all the plagues of history. The quarantining for a year now of hundreds of millions of healthy people. If you heard my serialisation a year ago of Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, you'll know that one reason governments never attempted anything like this in the past is that they understood that one immediate consequence of this kind of thing is that people would be mad and they'd take it out on the government. And it's rather sobering to reflect that even though the burghers of mid-17th century London did not get to send mail-in ballots to be processed on Dominion voting machines and then driven on USB sticks for hundreds of miles in the dead of night, despite not having the freedom to do that, in a certain sense they were freer than us in that the state lacked both the means and the will to do to them what Boris and Justin and Emmanuel and Ankela and Governors Newsom, Cuomo, uh, Baker are doing to people right now. In fact, as I mentioned, at least with respect to curfew, the Germans (laughs) didn't do this. In the bad old days, uh, the, the point I always make about the French curfew is that it's almost twice as long as what the Germans uh, did when they were uh, occupying France. So I think their thing was uh, 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. and uh, the current French curfew is 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. You know, we're living... Uh, and that, that's not because the... That's not because the Germans were kindlier, nor because uh, regimes of the past anywhere were kindlier. I think it's I think it's more to do with the ruled than the rulers. We're living with one of the most extreme consequences of the redefinition of the relationship between the citizen and the state that took place over the last century. The citizen is much more of a subject than he was in the London of 1665. And he has become a subject. He has reverted uh, from, um, devolved from citizen to subject by choice in that he expects the state to be his nursemaid. And the state actually isn't a very good nursemaid, which is why all these poor people have died in these old folks' homes. And, And... Uh, The best thing we could do for people is essentially the position that the Swedes and a few other people took, is that if you are at higher risk, uh, if you have an underlying condition such as diabetes or cancer or obesity or great old age, uh, it would be prudent for you to take steps to protect yourself. You cannot install a universal regime uh, that will that will be as effective as you making prudent choices specific to your situation in life. Uh, but they never were called for the, what the terrible slaughter they inflicted on their old people, as we now see in New York, they are likely to get away with because essentially uh, citizenship has become degraded as it's declined back into the condition of subject. So Uh, It's easier to expect the government as nursemaid to install universal programs that are generally totally worthless. Uh, That's that because that requires less effort than making prudent personal decisions 
based on one's own circumstances. The absence of any serious mass movement against lockdown as it begins its second year is very telling. Let's have a bonus question. A bonus question from Midwestern Tim, a first-month founding member of the Mark Stein Club, who writes, Mark, I've offed, offed, he's offed, <laughs> he's offed to see the wizard. Mark, I've offed asked you about my fellow Columbus, Ohioan, Michael Feinstein, but have yet to get a response. You and he seem to have the same background as musical historians. Have you met him? Uh, any fun stories about you, him, Boris, Elton, John and Bono having dinner with the Queen? Hmm, I think Tim's trying to tell me something there. Name drops keep falling on my head, as my old friend, the acclaimed mouth organist Larry Adler used to say. Uh, by the way, that's another thing I hate about lockdown. I don't go anywhere, which means not so much that I don't see anyone, but that I don't run into anyone, which is what I used to like about venturing to Montreal or New York or London and just strolling down the Boulevard de Maisonneuve or 6th Avenue or Regent Street uh, and bumping uh, into someone you hadn't seen in a couple of years. And I have the strange feeling at least two of those places I will never see again. Anyway, I've met Michael Feinstein several times over the years, over the decades. I think the last time we were physically in the same room was on a BBC show with Elaine Stritch. And I think the last time we had any contact was about four years ago uh, when he needed uh, some of my books in a hurry, a, a song for the season and that sort of thing. Uh, not America alone and after America, but he needed uh, a few of my books in a bit of a hurry, which was really awfully sweet of him. He's done a lot of good in this world, a lot of good, and some of his records I enjoy very much indeed. And in fact, Tim, we will hear one of those gramophone records in just a moment. And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. February 2021 marks the sesquicentennial of the death of Heinrich Steinweg. That's how he was born, and he really had a rough start in life. He entered the world in 1797 in Wolfshagen im Harz in the Duchy of Brunswick, still formerly part of the Holy Roman Empire in those days. Um, he was erroneously orphaned at the age of eight. That's to say his parents were assumed to be dead and he was left to fend for himself. But it turned out his dad and big brothers were just off a soldiering and eventually they returned from war and he was de-orphaned, as it were. Then at 15, he was re-orphaned and at that point he gave up on family life and joined the army. But what he really liked to do was make musical instruments. He started making zithers and guitars and graduated to piano, small at first and then bigger and bigger. After the revolutions of 1848, he brought his family and his business to America, changed his name from Heinrich Steinweg to Henry Steinway and made Steinway pianos the most famous pianos in the world. So, to mark the 150th anniversary of his death, I thought we'd have a song about pianos. I love the piano, I love the piano, I love to hear somebody play on a piano, a grand piano, it simply carries me away. I know a fine way to treat a Steinway, 
I love to run my fingers on the keys, the ivories. That's with the Billy Murray, the first person to record that song, written by Irving Berlin for his 1915 show Stop, Look, Listen. And he knows a fine way to treat a Steinway. He put the piano manufacturer right up there in the lyric. And he wouldn't have done that had Heinrich Steinweg not changed his name to Henry Steinway because you can't know a fine veg to treat a Steinweg. He'd have had a whole different scale of rhyming problem there. Irving Berlin <laughs> did have a problem with a kind of related rhyme in the latter half of the song. Here's Liza Minnelli. Pedal, I love to meddle when Paderewski comes my way. I'm so excited when I'm invited to hear that long-haired genius play Well, you can keep your fiddle Give him bow, give me a P I A N O Oh, oh, I want to stop right beside an upright or a I'd like to stop right beside an upright. That's a very wobbly rhyme. Up is a hard word to rhyme, as I discovered earlier with our COVID test kit version of Edelweiss. We had up in the first section, and I rhymed it with yup in the second. Other than that vernacular form of affirmative response, the pickings are slim. I'd fill my cup right beside an upright, I'd tie my pup right beside an upright. Even that Fineway Steinway rhyme is a problem if, like many uh, pianists, you happen to be contracted to another piano manufacturer. Here's Michael Feinstein. I know a fine way to treat a Steinway, but I'm exclusively a Baldwin artist. I love to run my fingers over the keys, the ivories. And here's how Michael eventually resolved that problem. And I love a piano. I love a piano. I love to hear somebody play. On a piano. A grand piano. appalled win it's not a bald win well that's as good a rhyme as stop right beside an upright from the stein archives let's wander back to an irving berlin 100th birthday special i hosted a third of a century back 
which included various of Mr. Berlin's fellow songwriters wishing him a happy birthday and playing their favourite Irving Berlin song. And if you thought they'd all picked White Christmas, Blue Skies, Putting on the Ritz, well, no. A lot picked rather obscure numbers. Here's Julie Stein, the man who gave us Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, and shows like Gypsy and Funny Girl. Here Julie uh, opts for not only I Love a Piano, but a lovely, just lovely old-fashioned song, from the Music Box Review of 1922. Among the fans of those early Music Box Reviews was a young composer who'd later write Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend and the Party's Over, Julie Stein. Happy birthday, Irving. A few strains of love to keep me warm. That's when we first met on the set of On the Avenue at 20th Century Fox but I knew you long before then. I knew you, uh, well, my first musical comedy that I ever went to when I came from Chicago it was at the Music Box Theater. resist singing Irving but you know how composers sing in those good old crinoline days old-fashioned people with their old-fashioned ways when the girl a fellow courted was the girl he married and supported back to in 1874 rosy complexions weren't bought in a store granny and granddaddy longingly gazed back to those crinoline days that was my first meeting with you, Irving. We didn't know each other, but boy, I knew you from then on. And when my, then when I had my playing around Chicago with the bands, you know, everybody thought I was being bribed by the Irving Berlin office because I was, when I had my band, I guess I played eight or ten songs a night of Irving Berlin's. And, oh, I'm going to do this song because uh, this lyric happens to be the favorite lyric of mine of all lyrics around. They don't write them like they're serving anymore. It's printed on this. I'm reading it off the sheet and it's in E flat and I should sing it in C. Well, I'm going to fake it and sing it in C. I love a piano. I love a piano. I love to hear somebody play. Upon a piano, a grand piano, it simply carries me away. I know a fine way to treat a stein way. I love to run my fingers over keys, the ivories, and with the pedal, I love to meddle. Not only music from Broadway, 
I'm so delighted if I'm invited to hear a long-haired genius play. And so you can keep your fiddle and your bow, give me your P-I-A-N-O-O-O. -O. I love to stop right beneath an upright or on a high tone, baby grand. Happy birthday, Irving. Love you. Julie Stein singing and playing Irving Berlin. I love to stop right beneath an upright. I think that's an improvement. Uh, and how about that lovely crinoline days when the girl a fella courted was the girl he married and supported? Not a lot of that uh, anymore. Uh, I love it when Julie says, to me, I, I can't resist singing, but you know how composers sing. I love to hear songwriters sing, and I miss Julie Stein and Irving Berlin in that respect. Julie was a piano prodigy, and he certainly knew the Julie Stein way to treat a Henry Stein way. And so that is our circuitous tip of the hat to a... A piano man who died 150 years ago, Henry Steinway. Mark Stein's Last Call. Most of the nation-states of the world are very new. They date from the rapid decolonization of the 50s and 60s on, and often how those new nations fare is determined by their first post-colonial leader. If you're lucky, you get Sir C. Rusaga Ramgulam, first prime minister of Mauritius. If you're unlucky, you get Robert Mugabe. And uh, you notice that the bad guys are generally more famous than the good guys. For the four and a half decades of independent Papua New Guinea, its politics were dominated by Michael Samari, who died this week. I should say the Right Honourable, the Grand Chief Sir Michael Samari, GCL, GCMGCHCFSSIKSGPC, as he ended up, according to the PNG Press. Let me see if I can do all those. <laughs> GCL is a grand companion of the order of, I think it's Logohu, uh, which is the highest PNG honour. Knight Grand Cross of the Order of St. Michael and St. George, companion of honour. There are only 65 of those from across the Commonwealth. They include Margaret Atwood and Dame Kiri Takanoa, Companion of the Order of Fiji, SSI, uh, I think is Star of the Solomon Islands. KSG is a papal order, Knight of St. Gregory. And PC indicates a member of Her Majesty's Most Honourable Privy Council in London. Not bad for a fellow whose dad was a native sergeant in the Australian constabulary that then policed Papua New Guinea and during the Japanese occupation was forced into hiding because he was regarded as a prime target of the Japanese occupiers. In 1905, London had transferred what was then British New Guinea to the brand new Commonwealth of Australia as part of a vague desire that the then dominions, 
Canada, South Africa, New Zealand, Britannia's doughty lion cubs should take a hand in colonial administration of their own. After the Great War, all except Canada, which had no taste for the project, did. In that war, Australia had conquered German New Guinea to the north of British New Guinea, thrown the Germans out, and the League of Nations were happy for them to hold it as a territory. As the decades went by, there was a vague desire in Papua New Guinea for independence, but also an interest in becoming Australia's seventh state. Australia mostly wanted to be shot at the joint. They regard it to this day, uh, if you talk to Aussies on all sides of the political spectrum, as uh, a morass of dysfunction. As Pacific nations go, it has a very large population, larger than New Zealand's, uh, but distribution-wise, it's the most rural nation on earth and its millions of people speak over 800 languages. Mr. Samari, not yet Sir Michael, surprised Guff Whitlam, uh, his colonial master in Canberra and a Republican, uh, by wanting to keep... Uh, the Australian monarchy as a unifying force in a new nation that didn't have a lot of others. I've been to Port Moresby just the once and I noticed there seemed to be a lot more fellows running around with knighthoods than almost anywhere on earth, including Westminster. But the system has held. Things got a little dodgy a decade or so back when Parliament and the Supreme Court backed different men for Prime Minister. And the Governor-General sided with the court and Parliament removed him and replaced him with the Speaker as Interim Viceroy. And the Queen did one of those things she occasionally does to great effect. Uh, that's to say she did nothing as a means of doing something. She never formally revoked the supposedly ex-Governor-General's commission. And ultimately the GG survived and Parliament's choice of PM survived. And both parties were reconciled, and I couldn't honestly say uh, that the stressed institutions of Port Moresby had behaved any worse than, for example, the courts and legislatures of the United States have behaved with respect to the shenanigans of November the 3rd and the nighttime hours that followed. It's not easy maintaining a Westminster parliamentary system in the jungles of New Guinea. Uh, Sir Michael Samari does not want for critics. There are those who call him the Grand Chief and those who call him the Grand Thief. Uh, they say PNG could have been another Hong Kong or Singapore. On the other hand, he'd blame that on the Australians. And the Australians, in turn, would blame it on London, who gave them the British half of the country. And then when the Germans got thrown out, another big chunk of it, but with an entirely different legal system and so on. Yet PNG has muddled along under the Grand Chief and his various successors until Sir Michael Samari's death this week. There has always been a Chinese population, but there is now also, as elsewhere in the Pacific, Chinese subversion within that population and beyond it. Beijing regards PNG as firmly within its sphere of influence, as we'd say in the old days. So here, as elsewhere, ultimately the story is China and the silent, constant, unrelenting advance of its interests in the Pacific, in the Indian Ocean, in the Middle East, in Africa, in the West Indies. And so we end where we came in. 
If you're not talking about China, you're not talking about anything that matters. And PNG is just another place where Chairman Xi wants you to assume the position and let him shove it up you and give it a twist. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.